0: Hello, I'm Mel. And I'm Steph. And this is East Asia for All, a podcast
1: about the East Asian pop culture and media that you love. We're both working on our PhDs in Chinese history, but we also study and teach about East Asia in general. If you're listening right now, you, like us, probably also have an addiction to East Asian pop culture and media.
0: Between the two of us, we've lived on and off in China, Taiwan, and Japan since 2007. So we're taking our love for East Asia, our experiences there, and the knowledge we've gained in the ivory tower, and making it available beyond our classroom walls. This episode of East Asia for All is about the 2011 Taiwanese film Warriors of the Rainbow. It was the most expensive Taiwanese film made ever. It cost about 23 to 25 million USD to make. It was directed by Taiwanese director Wei Da Sheng, who also directed the award winning film Cape Number Seven.
1: Yeah, and both of Wei's films, uh, Warriors of the Rainbow and Cape Number Seven, explore legacies of Japanese culture and imperialism in Taiwan. Which was a colony of the Empire of Japan from about 1895 to 1945. Long time. So for warriors, the plot centers around one historical event in particular in 1930, the Wuxia Rebellion. Or Musha in Japanese. That's right. And it was an attack by the indigenous Taiwanese Sadiq tribe on Japanese colonists when the whole settlement was gathered for a sports day. And so to give you an idea of the scale, there were about 300
0: Sadiq warriors who attacked the colony. And they combined forces with other tribes, making a total of about 1,373 native people who were involved in the uprising. So by the end of the day, about 134
1: Japanese were killed out of about 227 total colonists. And out of that group of the 1,373 indigenous people, only 551 survived the Japanese retaliation. And many of those deaths were actually suicides.
0: Yeah. So in the end, about two thirds of the native population of those combined six tribes who took part in the
1: uprising were killed. Now, Warriors of the Rainbow was originally released as two movies for a staggering total of four and a half hours. But the international version released here in the U.S. was abridged to about two and a half hours It tackles a pretty complex situation that tells us a lot about this particular historical moment in Taiwan's imperial history. But even more interestingly, maybe, it really gives us a glimpse into modern Taiwanese identity politics.
0: Yeah, that's right. Because we not only have the indigenous people of Taiwan and Japanese colonizers represented in this film, but also Han Chinese folks who have emigrated from the mainland. And there is a lot
1: to talk about with regard to what is shown or not shown in terms of gender. And we're really excited today because we have Professor Leo Ching of Duke University with us, whose 2001 book, Becoming Japanese, covers the whole Wuxia incident and the formation of contemporary Taiwanese identity politics. And we hope you enjoy our conversation with him as much as we did.
0: We would like to welcome today Leo Ching to East Asia for All. If we could maybe ask you to briefly introduce yourself and the sort of research that you do.
2: Sure. So I teach Japanese and East Asian cultural studies at uh, Duke University. I, my current project is on anti-Japanese sentiment in uh, post-colonial East Asia. The manuscript is contracted with Duke University Press, so I'm in the process of final revision. So the book uh, looks at a regional formation of uh, anti-Japanese sentiment focusing on China, South Korea, uh, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and other parts of uh, East Asia. The uh, simple argument is that, uh, one, uh, anti-Japanese sentiment is a result of the failure of decolonization in 1945, and also uh, it's a symptom of the rise of uh, China in the region, and something that obviously we can uh, talk about later.
0: Oh, that sounds great. Thank you so much for joining our podcast. We really appreciate this. And so today we wanted to talk about the 2011 historical drama Warriors of the Rainbow, directed by Wei Da Sheng. And it's a a very, very long film, as we mentioned in the introduction, over four hours, and it is based on this 1930 rebellion staged by native Taiwanese against Japanese imperialists.
1: Yeah, so listeners may or may not be familiar that the island of Taiwan was a colony of Imperial Japan from 1895 up until the end of the war in 1945, World War II. And that it's, it's kind of interesting. So when I moved to Taiwan in 2010, I think, I, you know, came into that knowing that history, right? Knowing that history of Imperial Japan. And I really thought that there would be some strong anti-Japanese sentiment in Taiwan. And actually, I was really surprised that there was not and there was actually a lot of you know popular japanese culture and really not a lot of negative feelings at least expressed to me The only time that I had, I had a Taiwanese friend that said that he didn't really like Japanese folks, but his reasoning was actually had nothing to do with imperialism in Taiwan. He was because of the Nanjing massacre. And he actually predominantly identified as Chinese and not as Taiwanese, which for his age group, I think, and now in this current moment was kind of unique. So that was a really, that was really illuminating to me when I moved to Taiwan. Yeah.
2: So, so one thing is, 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 is quite customary to um, pin sort of, uh, I mean to look at China and Korea as uh, resolutely anti-Japanese, and somehow Taiwan, for whatever reason, is pro-Japanese, right? And so in, in the manuscript that I'm working on, I actually argue that the kind of pro-Japanese sentiment is really a post-war invention, if you will, rather than a kind of natural progression because somehow they just love Japan. But rather that, that, I mean, there is a contradistinction from the nationalist takeover, right? So compared to the nationalist takeover in 1949, that the Japanese period, not so much the Japanese people themselves, appear to be much more lenient and, and modern, you know, modernizing and so on and so forth. So the the part of the argument is that for the Taiwanese, it's not so much they're they're naturally inclined to like Japan or the Japanese, but rather the nostalgia is actually for the Japanese period, in which that period seems to be more orderly. There were um, you know policing, social harmony that was not available or that was was not there when the nationalists uh, took over in 1949. But then on the other hand, the young people has very different relationship with Japan, mostly mediated through popular culture. So, I mean, I'm sure you are familiar with the, uh, the word harder, right? Yeah. Which meaning to liking Japan. But now there is actually a more extreme called You know, so using the moe, <laughs> the, the whole Japanese uh, otaku culture, the, the moe, meaning having some kind of like, not addiction, but almost a kind of visceral uh, reaction to uh, Japanese popular culture. So I think it's yeah it's, it's 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 very historical, but also highly complicated. Depending on generation, depending on um, one's you know position vis-a-vis Japan and China and so on and so forth.
0: Which actually segues pretty well into what we wanted to talk about next, which was just if you could give us a little bit of an overview of colonialism in Taiwan. Not necessarily sort of a historically like these are all the important dates and years, but what you think are the important moments. In that imperial history,
2: so it is often said that what constitutes a kind of Taiwanese identity is the experience of multiple colonizations, right? From the 17th century, from the Dutch, and then the Spaniards, and then from the uh, imperial Qing dynasty, and then the Japanese, and then the uh, you know the nationalists, and so on and so forth, right? So, so in a way, any kind of historiography, this history of uh, victimization actually becomes a kind of uh, culminating sort of identity formation, right? That because of multiple oppression, therefore there has to be something that constitutes a kind of distinctively different Taiwanese identity. I, I think, you know, that it is quite interesting in the sense that by talking about the kind of continuity, it actually conceal or obfuscate some radical shift in the question of colonialism in Taiwan. So one example is, of course, if you think about uh, the earlier, like the Dutch Spaniards and even the Qing sort of rule all over. So I think one, for me at least, one crucial demarcation is uh, 1871 when um, 50-some Japanese, or not Japanese, from Ryukyu, from the Ryukyu Islands, the fishermen were killed or beheaded in southern Taiwan. And the Japanese state used the opportunity to basically demand to the Chinese court to say, well, are these people under your control, right? And if not, we have the right as a sovereign nation state to basically go in there and find out who killed our men and then to uh, take revenge. So this is the moment, I think, when the Japanese um, began to assert It's the kind of new modern sovereignty that's not based on the kind of larger imperial tributary system in which there was a clear hierarchy with China in the center. so the political geography was very different. It was not based on a kind of equal nation-state formation that the Japanese was trying to insert um, into East Asia. And that to me, I think, it's, it's, it's really the, the beginning or the formation of kind of modern political geography in East Asia that inherits the kind of Westphalian nation-state system that came out of uh, Europe. And this is where Japan tried to undo the unequal treaty and so on and so forth. So uh, true Taiwanese identity really only emerged after Japanese rule in which the, the, kind of the whole idea of, of modern subjectivity, modern uh, modernization, and all kinds of uh, capitalist development began to take place in Taiwan. And of course, what makes Taiwan interesting is because the aborigine population, which were initially excluded from this whole remaking of the, of the colony, which, of course, will lead us to the 1930 Musha, you know, incident and then the subsequent, I guess, people's attraction to this particular event.
1: That's really interesting because that is looking at the 1870s. That's much earlier, right? Than I feel like that watershed moment, usually most people uh, point to 1895, right? The Treaty of Shimonoseki, right? So that puts a little bit earlier and kind of it reveals that there are already a number of groups, right? And a lot of tension in that area, by the time of 1895 i think you know we wanted to talk about what made this rebellion in 1930 so interesting cuz there were others right
0: yeah and and why the usha or musha rebellion has occupied such a central space in popular
2: Yes, imagining, uh, imagining
0: yeah. of the Aboriginal uprising and resistance to imperialism. I don't know if you have thoughts about that that you wanna.
2: Right. So, like every kind of his, historical event, right? Obviously, the event happened, but then it's really the the afterwards, right? The the, the telling of the event that actually makes the event itself. And I think uh, the reason why the Musha incident or the, the Musha rebellion, depending on who you're talking to, because the Japanese official obviously preferred the word incident to describe it, whereas the, uh, the nationalists would want to use rebellion, right? And I think what is interesting is that if you look at the way that this particular event has been re-narrated, recounted, you know, both from Taiwan, but also from Japan, um, what is consistent is that the aboriginal voice oftentimes is left out. In other words, the event is often appropriated by either the Japanese writing about it or the Taiwanese writing about it. That has actually very little to do with the aborigine uprising itself, but rather how certain type of nationalism gets played into the whole uh, discussion. So for for example, in post-war Taiwan, there are numerous stories, uh, even films and plays, that are actually made about the, um, the incident. But oftentimes they are bifurcated between a kind of Taiwanization, in other words, want to use the incident to reassert the kind of independent Taiwan consciousness, or they will be like Chiang Kai shek, you know, sort of using the event as a way to think about a larger Chinese nationalism. And the same way in post war Japan. The uh, Marxists, for example, or the or the not, the, not so much the Marxists but the socialists appropriate the event as trying to to think about the larger contradiction of Japanese colonialism itself. So the individual, the rebellion, and then the uh, the aftermath itself is actually become part of the larger story, right? And then the li- so and the liberal does the same thing. So I guess the what it's telling is that throughout the post-war history of the post-event. That oftentimes, what is happening is that the the reason why the, uh, this particular incident has drawn so much sort of attention, I think, is because we just don't know. I mean, there's so much you know, ambiguity in terms of was this really planned ahead of time or this was just like, you know, something that just like most revolution that doesn't take much, right? It's just a spark. And, you know, what were the overarching factor that contributed to the to the uprising? Was it really just the labor issue or was it, you know, the gender issue with the aboriginal woman being um, sort of deserted by Japanese policemen? So there's all kinds of intrigue as, as, as to how the most supposedly well-assimilated, law-abiding tribe will rise up and basically kill all kinds of Japanese from, not just men, right? Women and, and, and children. So I, so I think it's, it's both that the event itself, you know, we're not quite sure exactly how it happened, but also I think the way that the, the kind of uprising gets reappropriated by both Taiwanese consciousness, uh, Chinese nationalism, and Japanese liberalism throughout the post-war years. And, and the way the sense film, I think it's it's closer to the Taiwan trying to assert some kind of Taiwan, uh, distinctiveness of Taiwan. But then I think he's also very much interested in in Hollywood. So he he obviously wants to turn this into an epic, and which itself, of course, has become an epic. But I think that's part of the reasons why I think the the incident and its aftermath has created this kind of intrigue to this day.
1: You know, I think that it's obviously a watershed moment, both for Taiwanese folks, but then also, yeah, thinking about iterations or changes in Japanese colonialism, right, and how this incident really, because as you said, and this, I think maybe the film kind of didn't explore this as much, right, this idea that Japanese colonizers had of this particular group of people in this particular, you know, village or place being very law abiding, as you said, and how this was a watershed moment that really changed not only those conceptions, right, of Taiwanese Aboriginal people, but then it shaped the course of future forms of colonization.
2: So, in the, in the, I guess, in the, in the, in the book, at least in the chapter, what I try to argue is that this incident shocked Japanese colonial policymakers, and along with the subsequent sort of mobilization effort, so they have actually shifted the policy from a more enforced sort of conversion to a much more assimilative. I mean, I guess, create a kind of colonial subject that is more willing rather than. Uh, simply law abiding or simply working for the Japanese, and I, I do think that this particular incident has actually made that shift. Uh, at least that was that was my argument in the in the book.
0: Well, maybe then we should talk about Japanese conceptions of the incident, including this novel that you recently
2: brought up. So, what's interesting is is if you look at uh, most of the Japanese reception of the film that you say came out in two thousand eleven, yeah. right? So it's, it's fairly positive. Obviously, they know that he's already done One Cape uh, Number 7, which sort of is a film about this kind of uh, love between a contemporary uh, Taiwanese uh, band member and a Japanese, I guess, woman in contemporary Taiwan, but also traces this kind of long uh, relationship between a Japanese colonial teacher and... Taiwanese student, so it's like a two love story going on at the same time, right? So it creates this really sense of this this uh, intimacy between Japan and and Taiwan. So so that was the the context in which the film of Warrior came in. Uh, so when you read uh, some of the reception, it's actually what they what the, a lot of Japanese, uh, both scholars and viewers, do is that they they, they separate we we call抗日 or or resist Japan and 反日 or anti Japan. Right so what they argue is that the film itself is resisting Japan. It's a, it's a history of resistance against the Japanese, but it's not anti-Japan. Unlike the Chinese TV dramas that, you know, thousands and thousands of Japanese soldiers gets killed every year, right? This is the only state sanctioned sort of anti-colonial drama that are being allowed to be filmed in China especially during the um, national day. So so in that sense I think it's really uh, interesting to think about the slippage from resisting Japan to anti-Japan, right? So on on the one hand China is considered just resolutely anti-Japan. However, Taiwan despite that films such as uh, the Rainbow Warriors appear to to chronicle the resistance or, or or revolt against Japanese rule, but by nature is not anti-Japan because it actually depicts the Japanese character is much more both, of course, evil, but also the ones that are very sympathetic and that really try to work hard to bridge the, the two uh, differences. And, and also I find really interesting is that oftentimes they talk about the difference in terms of cultural differences. So it's not so much the structural difference between a colonizer and colonized, you know, the mountain people versus, uh, you know, the Japanese, but rather cultural difference. As if these two cultures, right, headhunting culture and, you know, civilized culture, and it's how to bridge, you know, to understand the culture. Somehow cultural understanding will then, for whatever reason, contribute to resolving the colonial problem. Which, of course, is kind of very diluted culturalism, right? That somehow, as long as I know who you are, you know who I am, you know what I do, then you know we don't have to worry about the structural.
0: Ignores the power the dynamic. The yeah. power dynamic,
2: absolutely. So the film has been really well received in Japan, as far as I know. So let me you know, maybe talk about this book that was uh, by Tsushima Yuko called Amarini ya- Yabanna. So the English translation could be exceedingly barbaric. So Tsushima actually is a very interesting author. I mean, especially the, the last uh, few years, um, she has uh, been sort of looking to history and writing novels that has based on certain kind of historical events. So like one of the books that came out earlier was about the evacuation, the forced evacuation of young children during the war and all the kind of complication and, and things that's with it. So, so in this book, uh, Exceedingly Barbaric, the Musha Incident is the background, but it's really about a colonial woman going to Taipei, following her husband, and feeling the kind of, um, I guess, oppressiveness of the colonial city because um, a lot of these colonial women are not allowed to travel outside of the Japanese community. So the story is interspersed again by two different timelines. So 1930s when the Japanese woman is in Taipei and in 2005 or something I can't remember the exact day where her niece a Japanese woman who revisits Taiwan and try to retrace her aunt's footsteps but also imagine where her aunt could have gone but couldn't go which is the mountains. So, so the Musha incident comes in when the, the aunt in 1930s reading about what's happening, and you see gradually she had this great sympathy, actually, for Mona Rudao, the leader of the uprising, and, and so, so the exceeding barbaric is not actually the barbarism of the aborigines, but the barbarism of the colonial subjugation. And she also thinks about, I mean, so the M- Mona Rudao actually almost become like a father figure to her, and then she also, of course, suffer all kinds of uh, you know psychological breakdown because of the way that she's treated by her husband, and you know she loses um, a child that she wanted to have, and and this losing a child is is a recurring theme in a lot of her novels, right? This sense of loss. But what I think is most interesting is is that at the end, what she does with the novel is that she creates this fictional, imaginary entourage that's made of a Taiwanese man. Mona Rudao, the leader of the revolt, her, his sister, and a bunch of other people. So what they have all in common is that they have experienced some sense of loss. They take this trip, right? So, so there's an Aboriginal mythology that there were two suns. I mean, the sun, like not the moon, but the sun. So it's too hot. So a group of people were dispatched to shoot down the sun. But because it's so far away, so each of these entourage have to carry a child on the back. So, but the, by the time to get to where the sun is, the child has grown to be, you know, grown men or women, and they will shoot down the sun. And by the time they come back to the to the world, they will be old and feeble. So the idea is that this is a generational relationality and an achievement. It's not that that requires this kind of intergenerational, but also intercultural, interracial, right? So it's got kind of mythology that she's adopting from the tribal. Uh, myths and turning that into a kind of, I would call it kind of cosmopolitan multiculturalism in which as long you share a similar sense of loss and you have this desire to remake the world, you can actually be part of the mission, right? So which breaks down the colonial colonized binary. It, it moves us very far away from this very masculinist anti-imperialism uh, to a much more I think a more nuanced way of thinking about reconciliation through a kind of collaboration and based on the myth of the you know the aboriginal that she heard that she recorded when she traveled to the mountains or or her niece imagining her going to the mountains, so uh, you know to me, this is uh, one of the most imaginative way of recounting the musha incident, not just recounting what happened but also the kind of utopic imagination that one can gain from the incident because i think most of the recounting of, of the incident you know as i mentioned earlier you know gets appropriate either to some kind of taiwanese consciousness or you know anti-japanese nationalism or even you know you know marxism or liberalism but it seems to me this kind of imagination this kind of myth making is really a kind of uh, interesting anecdote to the kind of very rationalized, politicized way of thinking about the event. I know the book is translated into Chinese, in Taiwan at least, but I don't know if it's uh, translated into English, and it'll be something that's, I think, uh, interesting to, to, to read.
1: Yeah, we'll definitely look for that for our audience. That sounds really thoughtful, and especially with female protagonist. protagonists, it sounds like, and kind of that interjecting to this conversation, which, as you said, is very masculinist, and the film, too, does this. And I don't know, you know, if we could talk a little bit about how gender plays out in this film, but obviously the you know, the primary you know motivators or driving forces behind the plot are all male and and even even male children seem to be more active um, agents than women, right? Adult women. They're kind of passive. And in a similar way, actually, Han Chinese characters are also portrayed as very kind of passive and harmless in this film. Especially because, at least from what we have read, there's
0: a lot of evidence that Aboriginal women played really important leadership roles within the tribe, and that is somehow ignored within the film. I don't know if you also have any evidence from your research of the way that gender played out.
2: We know, for example, I mean, the whole colonial rule of the Aborigine is based on a kind of exchange system that's based on gender in the sense that the chieftain's daughter are often married to the policemen. And if you think about the, ra- the the different ratio between the number of policemen to the population, I mean, in the plain area, it's like one to maybe 500, one police to like 500. Up in the mountains, like one to 50. So you see it's a very policed Area And oftentimes, the I mean, especially with the uprising, part of the reason is the fact that one of the Aboriginal um, women who were, I guess, married to the Japanese police had a fallout. So the Japanese policeman decided not to, I guess, treat her as, as, as a wife and so on and so forth. And then if you see a lot of photographs, for example, I mean, not very often you see Aboriginal men dressed up as uh, Japanese, maybe with the exception of the two uh, policemen that uh, supposedly committed suicide. But you see a lot of Aboriginal women wearing the kimono stuff. I mean, this is actually, you know, if you look at the colonial archive, you look at the photography, what is really, really clear is the fact that women are easier to assimilate than men. Right, but then women also play a kind of mediating role between the, the tribal right, and then the, uh, the Japanese. So it seems to me women always occupy this kind of liminal space that goes back and forth. And, and I think it is kind of interesting that in, in the film or in most of the, the recounting of the incident, the role women has been underplayed. Even though, as, as you mentioned, Melissa, that they were, uh, they were very active, right? Because they have to protect the children when, when so they have to know what hap- what's gonna happen. And they have to know how to react. Because as, as you know, um, it's not always quite clear whether you, know, you can distinguish between Japanese, Taiwanese, and the Aborigines, especially once they all start wearing uh, Japanese kimono. And so in, even in this instance, I, I don't recall the exact number, some Taiwanese people were killed because they were mistaken as Japanese. Right. So, um, but that's all to say that I think, um, yes, I mean, I think gender is, is a really important role, both in terms of the policing, but then also in terms of the negotiating, the mediating between civility and savagery, in which somehow women occupies that space. And, and I think there should be more work done in thinking about exactly what that means, rather than um, only allocating them to a kind of passive position.
0: Yeah. And I think, too, at least in your book, when you talked about the aftermath of the Musha rebellion, a lot of the greatest manifestation of the eventual pledging of loyalty by the Aboriginal people was that the men would go and serve as soldiers in the Japanese military. And I was wondering if there was any analogous transformation among women or if because they'd already been serving as this mediating role, it didn't change that much for them
2: so from, as far as i can tell and especially i think this is in in regards to the bell of saoyong the another kind of colonial heroine who supposedly died while carrying her teacher's luggage you know in the torrential rain and so on and so forth and you know again right the sacrificial woman and but i think in the film however in the bell of saoyong so before the woman actually dies she actually is the conscience the voice that tells the men who resent of joining Japan and you know fighting for the army to actually enlist, right? Even though they failed for the first time, and she's the encouraging, she's a supportive cast that basically says, "Well, you know, just do it again. You can do it, right?" I mean, you need to do this uh, for the country and so on and so forth. But but what is actually also interesting is is so there is actually a recent Aboriginal film, the first film feature film by a woman Aboriginal filmmaker. In Taiwan, and the film is called Finding Sayong, so looking for Sayong, and of course, the whole premises is that you know Sayong cannot be found because there are so many different stories about whether she actually sacrificed herself for the teacher, were they in a romantic relationship that was forbidden, and how old was she. I mean, so again, just like the the Musha incident, the story of Sayong also has this kind of uh, mystery surrounding it and oftentimes the only way we can get at what happened is through all these different type of uh, uh, narrative voices and there's no consensus. So again, I think, I think you know, it, it makes kind of interesting that, that somehow the, the aboriginal woman, even the, the young girl, her voice, again, is not, we don't hear it, right? We simply see her as a supporting cast and then because there's so many different versions about what really happened, she never speaks in that sense. I mean, I don't know. I mean, maybe there are more and more thing, literature now that's coming out or, you know, that will be able to, to focus more on the, the plight and the experience of Aboriginal women. I mean, in these, you know, sort of uh, rule, colonial rule and its aftermath.
1: Yeah, I hope so. Because I think that these, you know, when we do get those glimpses of women in these colonial spaces, it's, you know, it's very revealing. And they are really shown to be a driving force as well in these negotiations with colonialism. And so yeah, so gender, obviously, in the film, there was some controversy over that. There was also a lot of controversy over violence. As a trope, definitely the director seems to be channeling, like you said, this kind of Hollywood-esque use of violence as kind of a provocative thing in the film Um, and just in terms of, you know, the high production value and stuff that really comes through. You know, but some other people have also said that in this kind of nationalist epic that warriors and I'm here quoting uh, Jia Wu, who's an assistant professor of Chinese at uh, Rhodes College, who wrote a little bit about this, that this violence and the use of violence um, for these indigenous groups in Taiwan, quote, instill spirituality into this endless headhunting. And that in that context, right, that violence is used to kind of recover, quote, ethnic identity and cultural autonomy of the Sadiq people. But of course, that is very complicated. And these portrayals of indigenous people as very violent or but also honorable and kind of noble plays into stereotypes that could also be very negative, right? So, uh, for for native people, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that and the use of violence in the film.
2: I think part of the deployment or the employment of violence within the film, obviously, on the one hand, I think to to create a kind of visual uh, attraction that is often, you know, it's important for filmmaking. But I think it also resonates again with a certain kind of stereotype that even coming out of Japan, right? You think about Japan as the Bushido, right? The warrior culture who sacrificed themselves. you know, I mean the kind of violent, even from the their own sort of seppuku to all that kind of stuff. And yet you have this Sakura, right? There's this image of the cherry blossom, right? So you have this kind of a recurring trope in which certain kind of overt masculinity somehow is always counterbalanced by certain kind of aestheticism that somehow allows that masculinity to reveal itself without being uh, uh, criticized this resonates a certain type of I guess I mean warriorism or spirituality so which is not surprising to me but I mean I I find the film a little bit um, not so much because of the violence I'm unbearable I'm, I'm to watch but it's just the length itself and also I think the the narrative itself is very much in line with the accepted story of what happened so it doesn't really give us anything uh, the way that I think about Tsushima's work that, that allows a certain kind of imaginative way of, uh, of recasting the story into something new. And I see the same thing, as I mentioned earlier, with the, the baseball film about this multicultural team in, in, in Taiwan that consists of Aborigines and Taiwanese and Japanese. They formed this team. they actually were able to win and actually go to uh, Japan, Koshen, which is one of the most important mecca of uh, high school baseball to actually win the game and it's a, so in a way it's a celebration of kind of multiculturalism and the kind of romance that comes into some of the stuff it's really incidental. and so, so the story it's again interesting, but then it's, it's very long.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. What was the name of that baseball film
2: again? Uh, Kano, K A N O, which is the the name of the school in Taiwan, which is the uh, agricultural school in in near Tainan. And they actually this was actually based on a historical event. Uh, so they actually were, this was the first uh, I guess imperial or colonial team that actually won on Japanese soil. And I mean, because, you know, baseball has a long relationship, colonial relationship, because the Japanese brought baseball to, um, you know, both Korea and, and Taiwan. And and Taiwan, as I don't know if you know that uh, basketball and baseball are bifurcated by uh, ethnicity.
1: I was actually just reading about that. So right? basketball
2: we that. is for white center, right? So those mainlanders. And baseball is very much a uh, Taiwanese sport. But then, of course, a lot of the Taiwanese, uh, supposedly Taiwanese players, are of Aboriginal descent. And oftentimes, and now it's, it's, it's openly recognized, but at least until the last maybe 10, 15 years, oftentimes they sort of disguised their Aboriginal uh, origin. So, yeah, so sports is very political in that sense. Always, actually,
1: <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, it's actually too. This is kind of you know non sequitur, but or, or I guess it's related. But uh, the film, right, did have a lot of native Taiwanese actors. Not everybody was a native speaker of the language, um, including, I believe, the protagonist that played older Mona um, but there was that was something that that maybe the film did well was really uh, utilizing that linguistic knowledge and and culture and and also just employing native actors and I
2: think that is kind of important if you think about contemporary Taiwan I'm not an expert on on, on film or cinema but we do see for example uh, Ming Nan right Taiwanese language film along with like, for example, this film that tried to sort of reproduce the Aboriginal language, right? And I think in that sense, Taiwan is actually uh, quite progressive, um, especially within the East Asian context in terms of its uh, accommodation, if you will, for uh, multiculturalism, multilingualism. And I actually find that, you know, maybe this is part of the colonial history, right? Because you have the Hakka, you have the, you know, the Mandarin, but then you also have a lot of uh, older people who speak, still speak Japanese and young people learning Japanese. And and I think this, I don't know if this is something that's particular to Taiwan, but I do feel like it is in that sense much more part of it, maybe because it cannot claim a distinctive Taiwanese overarching identity, especially I think, even though I think the the President Tsai has uh, coined a term called 天然毒, right? Like naturally independent. So in other words, talking about the younger generation that, you know, it's no longer binded by the kind of unification or independence rhetoric, but they are already always somehow independent from the kind of nationalist rhetoric and i think that's interesting to think about the shifting sort of uh, social terrain cultural terrain of taiwan in relationship to say mainland china or um, other parts hong kong i mean for example
0: which ties really well into how we wanted to wrap up which was talking about contemporary taiwanese identity and how that has really been shifting lately and I think that goes back to maybe what you were talking about with the rise of anti-Japanese sentiment as being in some ways relation in relation to the rise of China as a major power in East Asia and the way that also, of course, a lot of young Taiwanese people really reject the label Chinese and do not want it to be called Chinese. And so, I mean, I think you've already said this, but I don't know if you want to just give us any thoughts about where contemporary Taiwanese identity formation is going, especially because this idea that young people now are not even positioning themselves within an independence versus reunification binary anymore. I think that's really new.
2: And also, I think, I mean, part of is that I mean, what is difficult is that the relationship between China and Taiwan, especially economic relationship is extremely close now. Right? We know that, I think, what, 30% of the economy is dependent on China, the Chinese market, on the manufacturing. And when I was there this summer, because of, uh, I forget which incident, that um, there was no tourist coming to Taiwan. I think, was it because of the, oh, because of the election, because of Taiwan, right, and Ma Yingzhou lost. So, I mean, whenever you go to, to Taiwan now, I mean, when you don't see mainland tourists, basically there's no tourists. There are very few tourists. So there are more and more Chinese students coming to Taiwan to study. And now, of course, there's a controversy because some universities have signed some kind of agreement saying that they will not teach controversial topics, which, of course, has to do with the cross-strait relations, Tibet, Tiananmen Square, you know, all the, the three Ts, right? <laughs> so, but I think, I think what is sort of interesting to me is, is, so recently there's a book that came out of Japan called Youth will never give up. So it's a book that's trying to think about the relationship between the sunflower movement in Taiwan, the umbrella movement in Hong Kong, and the seals, the, secu- the 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 students movement against the security revision in Japan. So it's it's a book that actually consists of interviewing among because for the first time the Japanese uh, students are saying we don't we don't know what Asia is like. We have never had to encounter Asia. But now we see that there is certain kind of contemporaneity or coevalness amongst young people demanding for certain kind of rights. So, so in that sense, I, th- I think there are going to be emerging. I mean, whether, how this will last, I'm not quite sure, but then at least from the, the attempt to create some kind of dialogue amongst young people, at least within these three areas, is very, very new. And I think it's very, very positive. And also I have some students who, who, are, who are doing a research on looking at the kind of uh, art, avant-garde art scene in Hong Kong, China, Taiwan, and Japan. Again, young people using art and culture to think about affinity, to think about a kind of regional identity. So I think that's emerging. And I think that's that, that will probably be a very different configuration for Taiwan. I mean, you know, even compared to say even 10 years ago. But I think the challenge is that all these sort of student movements is really based on a strong belief in liberal democracy, in representative democracy. So in other words, they're not interested in revolutionary change. I mean what they're interested in is, is to make sure that they get a voice in the political arena, which of course there's you know, this is you know well deserved. I mean there's nothing wrong with that. But I think part of it's it's especially after the kind of authoritarian regime in, in Taiwan and then you think about, you know, what's going on in Hong Kong and, you know, in Japan... I think that's where the, the challenge for the region in the future will be, you know. So how popular culture in a way governs because a lot of these people get to know each other and talk to each other mainly because they have certain kind of, uh, they grow up, you know, watching some type of anime, right? They have certain kind of uh, uh, relationship, right, whether it's online or not. I mean, and more and more in, in mainland China as well, even though these things are banned, right? But they can jump the wall and do that. So on the one hand, you, I mean, I do sen- sense that there is uh, what we call the kind of de-Westernization, in other words, uh, moving away from a kind of Euro American centric uh, or, or domination of popular culture, but rather a, a kind of Japan based, but also Korea mediated, Taiwan translated, because a lot of these uh, Japanese popular culture, when they reach China, they've already been translated twice, right? Once in Taiwan and once in Hong Kong. So, so y-
0: Which is why it's always in the traditional characters when it reaches the mainland, exactly. <laughs> you, you always know. <laughs> right,
2: right. And, and it's already, I mean, so a lot of uh, the kind of more um, risque or, or sexualized content already been sort of tamed so that much uh, easier. So, so in that sense, I, th- I think there will, or if not already, are emerging sort of a regional community based on young people, based on this belief in popular culture, but also this faith in liberal democracy, and I think China is the wild card because obviously I think, you know, China is the only country in that region that's not a liberal democracy in the, I mean, at least in name. And I think it's, it's, that's why the book actually does not include anything from China, right? So it's Hong Kong, Taiwan, and, and Japan. And we know uh, South Korea, for example, has a long history of student activism, you know, the democracy movement and so on and so forth. So, so the optimist in me sees that there is this growing sort of interaction among young people that didn't exist 10 years ago. The more, I guess, worrisome is, is then what happens to this belief in this faith in liberal democracy as we see in our own country. I mean, the electoral representative government might not always be the best, and we, you know, there are theorists who are talking about the limitation of this kind of a representative democracy rather than a kind of direct action. So, you know, who knows? But at least um, I think these are interesting issues to watch.
1: Yeah, I think it's an interesting moment right now for, for especially places like Taiwan and Hong Kong and Japan in this conversation. Thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. We really appreciate it.
2: Oh, thank you.
0: In wrapping up, we want to say a few words about our sponsors. We're a new podcast funded generously by the American Councils for International Education Critical Language Scholarship Alumni Development Program and the Phillips Ambassadors Alumni Award at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill.
1: If you like our podcast, you could really help us out by telling others about the podcast and leaving a review on iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at EastAsiaForAll or visit our website, EastAsiaForAll.com, for show notes and more information about the podcast. We're lucky that we don't need funding or donations right now, but we could use your support in getting the word out. Thanks.